And turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, we come down the home stretch here of this wonderful book, letter from Paul to his spiritual protege, Titus. I'm going to rat on Calvin here. I found out that Calvin was going to be in town this week as well. He's doing his internship at Summit Woods Baptist Church with Brett Capranica and going to Expositor Seminary. And I was like, oh man, you'll be in town. You want to you preach for me on Sunday night? The people would love to hear you exposit the word. And he's like, well, the only thing I've done recently is a lesson on the Council of Nicaea, so they probably wouldn't enjoy that so much. I said, all right, we'll let you off the hook this time. But next time, next time, you're in, you're in town, you're up. Titus 3. We have, as Christians, a constant, strained relationship with good works. When good works come up, we tend to get immediately nervous as though we are going to conflate our standing before the Lord with what we do for the Lord in our good works. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our our good works are not that which justify us before the Lord. We also know that God has saved us for good works and wants us to be active and persistent in serving him. Uh, We know many professing Christians who claim faith in Christ, but who have shifted the the core of their trust to what they do for the Lord, the good that they accomplish in their minds for God. We also are aware of many false religions and their systems of of good works uh, and rituals upon which they build a spiritual empire, a religious empire where the, the guys at the top get rich, essentially, off of the good works of the normal folk and their giving and their serving. Uh, and so we're uh, appalled by that and want nothing to do with that, but we also know that good works are important. On top of that, we struggle with our own internal system of assessment and approval or disapproval of our own standing before the Lord. And often that is in uh, relationship to our good works. And we kind of have this uh, social credit score, as it were, uh, between us and God. And we think that we're uh, doing better or worse, depending on how we're doing in our our good works. Uh, We often then carry that over to others, don't we? And judge others based upon this system of good works, that uh, if my good works are better, uh, are, are more frequent than that person's, then I must be a better Christian. We would never say that, but in our heads, we tend to struggle and think through that, or at least I do, maybe you don't. Uh, or, probably more prone for me, and I think probably for you, is to see others doing good works and to think, well, they're a better Christian than I am, because they're doing that better than I'm doing that, or they have insight into how to use that gift from the Spirit better than I do. And so we judge ourselves and wallow in our guilt before the Lord. Our text for tonight in Titus 3 hits at that very issue. It tackles it head on, and I think it liberates us from these various traps. There are many texts in the New Testament that are so clear about good works, but this text is one of the best. Obviously, good works have great profit for the believer when they're put into their right place in our heart and then in our lives. Uh, In this text, Paul gives us the great profit of good works. But not just that, he wants to warn us about something that will zap the energy and the 
intentionality of our good works in especially the church family, and that is foolish controversy. There's a lurking danger in the church that Paul sees, and so he addresses that in our text as well. So the profit of good works and the problem of controversy, those are our two main headings from Titus 3 tonight. Let's start reading in verse 8. I'll read down through verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self condemned. If you wanted a little side study off of your normal times in the Word to just encourage your faith, you might spend some time looking up the text in the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, that talk about good works. There's seven that explicitly use the phrase good works. There's up to 14 that talk about the idea of good works in the life of the believer in three short books. That's a major emphasis in the pastoral epistles, and Paul wants his, his understudies, Timothy and Titus, to understand how good works relate to the life of the believer and to the gospel itself. And so we come to this text wanting to be instructed in that way as well. It's not just Paul in the, the pastoral epistles, though, is it? I mean, you could really could almost go to any New Testament letter, and Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, let's say, And he addresses theological concerns, namely to to make the gospel clear and plain and straight against uh, common heresies that they're battling, first three chapters of Ephesians. And then shifts in chapter 4, not neatly and cleanly, but essentially in chapter 4 to how this now has ramifications for everyday life. If you believe this gospel of chapters 1 through 3, this is how it should look in your life. And and what are chapters 4 through 6 filled with in the book of Ephesians? Good works a life that is formed and shaped by this gospel of grace. And so there's nothing in the New Testament that's convoluted or confusing about good works, and yet we often struggle to think biblically about them. Good works seem to be a noose around our necks or maybe the proverbial whip across our backs to convince us that we are bad Christians. But the picture presented consistently in Scripture is the overwhelming joy and the benefit that comes through good works put in their proper place. And our text tonight is one of those texts that helps us with that. So here's, here's my thesis. I'll try to prove it to you. Here's my main point. Rightly understood, this text liberates our hearts to rest in Christ as we joyfully and zealously pursue good works that he's appointed for us to do. So if we rightly understand this text, we can be liberated to rest in Christ and to zealously pursue the good works that he's called us to do. The text also warns us of that danger I mentioned that will zap us of our desire and our power to do the good works that God has laid before us. I want to show you first the profit of good works. That's in verse 8. Very clearly he says that these good works are excellent and profitable for people. He says at the beginning of verse 8 that this is a faithful saying, that he wants Titus to insist on these things so that the believers may be careful to devote themselves to good works, which are excellent and profitable 
for all people. I want you to notice the fruit of God's saving work. So the prophet of, God, of good works, uh, un, under that, the fruit of God's saving works. This is what good works are. They're the fruit of God's saving work. And we find that in verses 3 through 7. We have, essentially, in verses 3 through 8, if we include our verse, we have an encapsulation of the entirety of the gospel, of all of its glorious truth. So in verse 3, just kind of follow along in your Bible as I point these things out to you. In verse 3, we're told of the need of our salvation as those who are enslaved to sin. That's where we start with the gospel. Verse 4, we're told that God is the source of our salvation, that this is his idea and his doing and his accomplishment. He's the source. It's his work alone. We see in, in verses 4 through 6 that this uh, salvation is uh, carried along by his merciful kindness. That's the grounds of our salvation. So because of his character as a merciful and kind and superaboundingly gracious God, we can be saved. And then we learn that God's work is the method of our salvation. So it's not by works of righteousness that we do, but it's his work to wash us by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the renewal of the Spirit and to make us justified by his grace. Then in verse 7, we learn that we have the the inheritance, that, that God's inheritance is the end of our salvation. So we begin with our sin. We're saved by his work. It's accomplished by his character. It's made reality by his process, by his method, regeneration and renewal justifying us, and it completes itself in that we have his inheritance. We have eternal life. And now in verse 8, we learn that good works are the result. These are the fruit of our salvation. So this is what new life in the heart of those who believe in God produces. It brings about good works. Just step back from the text for a minute. Think of all your convoluted thoughts about good works. And that section of Scripture puts it all in perspective. Good works come at the end of the process of your salvation to bring you out of darkness and into light. Now this is the fruit of that work out of you. Good works for the Christian are not profitable to earn us a better standing with God or to buy us the forgiveness of our sins or to somehow make our inheritance more secure. Good works are the fruit of God's saving work and therefore they are good and beneficial and profitable. Notice also that Paul makes us the focus of the pastor's ministry. So they're the fruit of God's word, of work, fruit of God's work, but they're also the focus of the pastor's ministry. So Titus is pressed by Paul to insist on these things. That word for insist is make this a priority of your ministry. In the churches of Crete, make this a constant uh, middle sea of your ministry with them. What is he to insist on? What are the, the things he's to insist on? Well, it's the clear teaching of the good works coming out of the gospel in verses 3 through 8. So Titus says he shepherds the flock of God with the word of God. He's to deepen their understanding and their grasp of the gospel of God and this glorious good news as it takes root in their hearts will cause them to be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is really helpful. There's a lot of ministry people in the room who've given their lives to ministry. This is instructive for us. This is helpful to know what is our job description in the church. 
Are we just to, to fill God's church with theological knowledge about the gospel? Are we just to explain it in all of its facets and, and all of its uh, theological categories? Are we just to have our people be able to take the theological pen and, and cross all the T's and dot all the I's of the gospel in just the right place? And if we did that, would we be successful in ministry? And, and Paul apparently would say no. Titus, you need to insist on these things. What things? That they do good works flowing out of gospel change. And so there's more to pastoral ministry than passing along knowledge. The gospel itself is inherently a life-changing message. So it's right, beloved, for your shepherds, your elders, to care about the status of your life before the Lord. Not just the status of your theological understanding before the Lord. It's incumbent upon them from, from apostolic warning in the book of Titus that they care that your life is filled and overflowing with the good works God's called you to do. And it's right of them to be concerned when they stop seeing that. When they see you pulling back from good works, when they, they see uh, evidences of sin in your life that they're not sure what it is, it's right of them to be concerned and to come and insist on these things for you to call you back to the gospel and to a life shaped by gospel realities. And so the result, if the pastor's ministry is calling people not just to think rightly, but to live in light of gospel grace, the result will be a people who are focused on, intentional about, devoted to the good works flowing out of the gospel. And this is really then the flower of God's kindness. This is the flower of God's kindness. So it's the focus of the pastor's ministry, but it's the flower of God's kindness. This is God's goodness worked out in the life of the believer to do good works, to be devoted to good works. So the seed of the gospel is the implanting of God's merciful kindness into the individual life. We saw that back in verses 4, 5, and 6, right? That he saved us, not because of anything we've done, but because of his mercy and his goodness and his grace. And so his grace comes upon us by the gospel seed being planted in us. And that seed grows into a plant. And that plant is matured and nurtured into maturity. And in maturity, it blossoms into a beautiful flower. And using that analogy, these good works in a Christian's life are the flower of God's kindness. This is his work of mercy in you to make you look like a Christian. To make you look like a follower of Jesus. This is him pressing upon you, molding you, and shaping you through circumstances, through the word, by the Spirit's power in and through you, by the church body rubbing up against you, iron sharpening iron, and exhorting and encouraging you. This is his work in all of those and many more means to flower his goodness out of you. To make his goodness seen in the world through you. This magnifies God. It's, it's excellent and it's profitable for everyone involved. And profitable simply means that there's gain here. It's obviously not financial. But there's gain here. He said that in 1 Timothy, right? There's, there's, not, there's not gain in godliness financially. But there's great gain in godliness with contentment. This is what he says here again in Titus. That it's profitable to be devoted to good works because of the gospel. 
Well, think with me. How is it profitable? How is a life of good works profitable as it flows out of you rooted in gospel realities? Well, it's profitable for you. It's profitable for the believer. Let's start with the individual. The individual himself committed to doing the good works God's called him to do. It's profitable for them. Why? Because they're living in line with how God made them and remade them in Christ. And you know how that feels when you finally find your niche in the world of the thing you're supposed to do with your life. And it's something you're really good at and you make a contribution and it's like you were made for it. And you love doing that. And it, it's profitable to you to see other people benefited by your investment, your work, your service to them, whatever it is. And so Christians are profited themselves as they serve in this area of good works. Christians are really kind of like muscles in the body, aren't they? They're intended to be, to be used, to be strained and stretched and and exercised, and to flex and work. And when they don't work, they grow weak and become ineffective. And that's the same exact thing that's true for Christians. When Christians work rooted in the gospel of grace, compelled by the love of Jesus, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls me, dictates my life of love for the church, When that's true of the believer, they're flexing the muscle of faith and doing the good works God's appointed for them to do, and they get stronger. They do more good works. They do good works better. They're more of a blessing to the body of Christ. But when they stop, when they are idle, when they are sick spiritually, when sin sucks them away and they lose focus and they stop serving the Lord, they become ineffective and Toxic to the body. Romans 12, 2, you know I love this text, but the, the first part's not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the next part says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul, rooted in the gospel, verse 1, by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice. Now, verse 2, don't think like the world. Don't be conformed. Don't be pressed by their way of thinking. Be transformed from the inside out. Be metamorphized. Think God's thoughts after him as the truth of God changes you from the inside out. And then put it to the test. You see, that's that's the very thing I'm talking about. It's not enough for you to think truth. It's not enough for you to know truth. You are designed by your Savior to live in light of that truth, to serve the Lord because that truth is true. And when you do, and you know this, when you do that, when you heed God's word and by faith you take him at his word and you do what he said you should do, there's delight there, isn't there? It's wonderful to do what God's called you to do. And you get on the other side of that, you say, why did I ever do anything different? And why don't I easily do this again? And yet you struggle the next day to do that again because you still have sin in you, right? But you love the will of God once you experience it and taste it. That's the idea. It's profitable for the believer to be devoted to good works. It's also profitable for the church. So broadening the scope from the individual to the church. The church is built up by the good works of the individual members. 
That's a duh statement, but I'm good at saying duh things. That's how the church is built. That's how she grows. That's how she develops. Back to the body analogy. When one part of your physical body is sick and non-functioning, the whole body suffers, right? Especially if you're a man and everyone knows about it, right? We struggle and we suffer and our body suffers because one part isn't working the right way. And if you're you know, my age or above, you can just wake up in the morning having done nothing and something hurts for three weeks. You're like, I don't even know what I did, but it hurts. And, and every time you move, you feel it, right? And that's just one little part, but it affects the whole. The same idea is true for the individual member in the church. And when we function as God has called us to, devoted to and zealous for good works, rooted in gospel truth, planted in gospel soil, not trying to earn God's favor, not trying to, trying to get the, the uh, smiley face sticker at the end of the day from the Lord. Not about that. Just trying to love God because He has so loved us. And when we, when we blossom into those good works, the church is built up and blessed. Ephesians 4, verse 15. It's a wonderful text. To, verses 11 and 12 talk about the gifts God's given of apostles and prophets and teachers, pastor teachers and he goes and evangelists and he goes on then to verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so a key factor to a church family prospering in the Lord, abounding in His grace, doing what He's called us to do, is each member abounding in the Lord themselves and serving as God has called and designed them to serve. Your good works and your devotion to them are profitable for the church. You can imagine that we as elders often hear, often is strong. We once in a while hear criticisms and hard things said to us about ministry, and there's always help in those. And we try to learn from those and grow through those. Often, though, as we try to help people work through their difficulties and misunderstandings and and even their right criticisms, often they come from a place where that person has ceased serving, ceased being helpful, and now is, is sitting and soaking and souring. And they're, they're getting toxic in the body. And they start then lashing out. That's not true of all criticism we receive. Uh, so don't think if you have a criticism that we're going to label you as toxic and lop you off of the body. That's not what I mean at all. But often, our tainted view of the church is rooted in our tainted commitment to do what God's called us to do and be what God's called us to be. The church is built up as we devote ourselves to good works. This profit of good works is also profitable to the world. So expanding the scope to as broad as we can, which Paul does here, it's profitable for all people. It's profitable for everybody of of all kinds of stages and phases of life. So the world is blessed by these grace-fueled efforts to do Good works. And Jesus said that in Matthew 5, 16, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, right? That's, that's a worldwide 
idea statement. That the world around you would see that you're doing things they're not doing, and they would be compelled to say, wow, they must have a God that's better than ours, and to give glory to your Father. And so as Christians are moved along by the grace of God, they impact their world with all kinds of powerful displays of good. The examples of this are endless, but I was reading recently a a Christian missionary autobiography. He's a church planting missionary, a pioneer church planting missionary in northern India. And he tells the story of, of laboring in that region. There's a very unreached and despised people group, uh, a, a people group that no one else had made efforts to reach. And he, being compelled by the Spirit, was driven to bring the gospel to them. And the Lord exploded that work. And, and I, I forget the exact number, but I think it was like 645 churches started uh, in that region through the efforts of this man and those who came to faith through his ministry. And as the church was being built and and as they saw great progress spiritually, they were burdened with the lack of medical care in that part of the country. And and so they saw that people were dying of things they didn't need to die from. And and to get them to a hospital was a multi-day journey that the journey itself would have killed them, let alone the disease that they were struggling with. And so they, they were burdened as the church and this missionary in particular with how can we as the church, God's people, be avenues of good works to meet these needs and then obviously ultimately to point them to Christ. And so they started looking at how they could bring in doctors and have mobile clinics and, and this just was blessed by God and exploded to the point where they now have a, a thriving, I think a three or four story medical center in northern India. Where it's just unheard of. And he said he's a, he's a celebrity now in northern India when people see him. He's the guy that started the hospital to all the unbelievers all the Hindu people who wouldn't have done that based on their own religious stance. That same story could be told over and over and over again. As God moves Christians by His grace, enables them by His power, they do great works that they never could do of their own volition. God uses them, makes them channels of blessing, and explodes His kindness in the world and uses it to build the church for His glory. Can you imagine a a world where the good works of God's people were removed? How awful of a place would that be? So our good works as the church are profitable for the individual, for the church, and for the world. There's a a contrary point here in Paul verses 9-11, that these gospel-driven efforts to do good can easily be derailed by foolish controversy. And it's really a constant problem in the life of the church. Almost every time I go to the mission field, and it doesn't matter where it is, wherever it is, almost every time. In fact, I cannot think of a trip where this has not happened. I learn of something in that local context, in that local church, where some kind of controversy that, you know, in the Lord easily could have been averted, but became a problem, and now people have left and, and... Uh, now are even no longer walking with the Lord because this blew up and a unified church was set off course from doing the good God had called it to do. And we don't need to go to the mission field to know that, do we? You all have your own stories of churches you're aware of or maybe have even been a part of where the unity of the body, the progress of the gospel, the glory of God in the world through the good works of the church was all brought to a screeching halt because of some focus upon foolish controversy. 
These types of controversies turn us as Christians in on ourselves. They make us navel gazers and pew sitters. We start looking for what's wrong in everybody else. We start nitpicking at our leaders. We start throwing stones at one another instead of being the channels of blessing and good works God's called us to do and to be. When foolish controversies strike and we give them the wrong kind of attention, we become like a stagnant pond with no outlet. We're meant by God to be channels of blessing, an ever-flowing stream. Receiving the love of God, Romans 5, 3, it pours out from us to others. That's what we're intended to be by God. But when we get wrapped up in these foolish controversies, we become stagnant ponds, we shut off the outlet, and we start soaking and souring and become a toxic pool of self-focus and self-love. And so Paul, in no uncertain terms here, says you must avoid foolish controversies. Not only that, you must avoid foolish contrarians. Both need to be avoided. That's the strong contrast from verse 8. Devote yourself to good works. Now verse 9, avoid foolish controversies. Let's look at that first idea of avoiding foolish controversies. To avoid means simply to, to go around it. I know that's a simple thought, but it's, it's like you're walking along, something's in the path, and instead of trying to get over it or through it or uh, get it out of your way, the idea is to go off the path and go around it completely. That's the idea that Paul's painting here. He says, avoid foolish controversies. Don't even, don't even grab the, the growling dog by the ears. Just get around the dog. It's, it, it will not turn out well for you. Go around it. Notice Paul doesn't tell Timothy to avoid controversies. We maybe wish he said that, right? If you're like me, you're a people pleaser, you like to be liked by others. Maybe you're not like me, that's just me. I hate controversy. I hate confrontation. I'd almost rather do anything else and often find many other things to do than that. But Paul doesn't say to Titus, avoid controversy. In fact, if he did, Paul and Jesus would have some explaining to do, right? Because their ministries were incredibly controversial. As they spoke the truth in context that didn't believe it, there was division. The truth divides people. We understand that. The clarity of doctrine draws up the lines of those who believe and those who don't. We get that. And absolutely, there are times for standing firm in uh, clear, undisputed truth and let the chips fall where they may in the battle that ensues. What Paul says to Titus is avoid foolish controversies. Avoid foolish controversies. Foolish is the idea of unthinking, mindless, brainless controversies. Things that, that you don't have to think much about to get involved in. And avoid, he goes on to say, genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law. He's identifying for us the very real temptation within the church to elevate minor points of disagreement and blow them up into massive controversies between us. On Crete, we learned in chapter 1, the island that Titus is serving on. We learned in chapter 1 that there's Jewish false teachers who are going from house to house and upsetting whole families as they taught things they were not supposed to teach. We learned that they were teaching Jewish myths, and we don't know what those were. Paul doesn't tell us. We don't need to know. But they're making up stories out of the Old Testament and apparently out of the genealogies of the Old Testament. Because somehow it served some greater truth they wanted to communicate, which actually wasn't truth at all. 
They wanted to look smart in front of God's people and, and make a, a, a name for themselves as they taught this new novel idea and what actually was a myth. Paul says, have nothing to do with this. He goes on to say, they're caught up in religious teachings and speculations about the law. Nitpicking other people's lives about how they lined up with good works or offense to the law. And Paul says, avoid that. Keep yourself from that. Now you're hearing that and you're like, okay, that's great in Crete. Where do we see that today? Where is that a potentiality in the church today? You could probably think of your own list. I just have a few to get you thinking about them. And as I say them, you'll know the kind of line of thinking to to develop further. But just think of of the insistence upon one form of, of schooling our children as the only godly option, as a potential foolish controversy. As though somehow you, as an elite Christian, have figured out how everyone else should parent their child. And and you're going to lay it out for everyone to do. And you elevate that and, and separate fellowship over that idea. Or the elevation of matters of conscience and Christian freedom. Raising those things to the, the bar of, of right standing before God, that you are more spiritual if you, if you observe my day like I think you should observe my day. Or if you don't do uh, X like I think you shouldn't do X. And if you do that, then you're obviously not holy like I am holy. I think that's one of these uh, disputings and disputations that happen in the church. The controversy uh, in that vein over music styles in the church. And these are not unimportant conversations, but often we get so focused on, on the controversy and the disputation of it and being right and proving our point and, and making sure others do what we want them to do that we actually fail to do good. The constant hunting for guilt by association. As major ministries in our country, in particular, as denominations, major denominations start slipping away from the truth, and there's no denying that they are. I can give you the receipts if we had time. There's no denying that they are. There is a definite liberal drift in the Church of America today. As we see that happening, it's really easy to start seeing associations between people and saying, well, they must be that because they whatever with this guy. And, and this is essentially what so much of the uh, discernment bloggers and there's YouTubers who make their living on this very thing. And I think often stir up controversy. I'm not saying there's no good points on those things. I read them. I listen to many of them. But so often it strikes me as people trying to stir up controversy over potential or supposed connections between one ministry and another so that they can keep people listening to them for the next show. Paul says, have nothing to do with that. What good is done out of that? What good works come out of that kind of approach and mentality? Paul says that these things are unprofitable and worthless. And you could think of your own list, I'm sure. But he says they're unprofitable and worthless. So the word for worthless has the idea of deception. It offers you something it can't deliver. And so you think going into this argument that you can, if you can just convince people of your way being right, that somehow you're going to gain something. And Paul says it's worthless. It's, it's deceptive. It'll never give you that thing. It's a worthwhile or worthless and completely uh, 
obsolete pursuit for the church. He goes on to say that as it doesn't deliver what it promises, it keeps us then from good works. You see, that's what Paul's point is about the gospel. The gospel should drive us to be doing good things. And if we get sucked into these foolish controversies and divisions and dissensions, we cease doing the good God's called us to do. We're not only to avoid foolish controversies, but also foolish contrarians. That's in verses 10 and 11. Titus is called to avoid the person, the controversial person. To have nothing more to do with him. Has the idea of of rejection or excommunication to, to put him out. The church is not to tolerate someone who insists on being constantly controversial over issues which ought not be the focus of the body of Christ. And if their influence is inhibiting the body from growing in good works, they need to be dealt with. And so Paul says that they need to be addressed publicly. The word in the original for this person is that of heretic. It's a a word that's used in Acts to speak of different sects. So it doesn't necessarily mean what you think of when you think of heretic, someone who's who's apparently terribly wrong in theology and is a danger to the church because of their wrong theology. What he means, and it'll develop into that later in church history, but what it means in uh, Titus and then in Acts is it's a, a sectarian person, a divisive person, one who wants to draw up the lines and say, I am of Paul, who are you of? Are you of Apollos or are you of Jesus? Oh, okay. And they want to fight. They're, they're drawing up lines so that they can have the battle. They're ready to go to arms at the, the drop of a hat. They can never be wrong. They never back down. They're unteachable. They always find the silliest and most insignificant things to have an argument about. And Paul says the churches have nothing to do with those kinds of people. They're foolish. He says, warn them once, warn them twice. It's a public rebuke, I think, in front of the church. And if they won't listen and they won't change, then Paul says they are to be completely excommunicated, avoided. Their influence is to be lopped off. Like the removal of a cancerous tumor from the physical body, this person is to be cut off from the body of Christ. Why? Because verse 11, he says, they're warped and sinful and they're self-condemned. Warped is a a perfect passive verb. It's a, a statement of their existence. It's who they are. They're perverted. They've chosen the wrong way to go, and now they are toxic in their soul. They're perverted before God. The idea of being sinful is a present active verb, and that's the the outworking of their perversion. Because they're perverted, they sin. They do sinful things. It's their character of perversion that leads to their action of sin. And since they won't heed the rebuke of the church, Paul says they're self-condemned. In other words, the verdict is obvious. Because they won't listen to God's ordained uh, accountability over their soul, they obviously are condemned themselves. They're contentious, divisive, foolish, and they're self-judged. So, beloved, the glorious gospel of Jesus is worth defending. But so are the ramifications and results of the gospel. It's not just worth defending the the axioms of the gospel. That Christ died for sinners. Absolutely. We must defend those axioms. But we must also defend and pursue 
the results of the gospel, the ramifications of that gospel truth entered into our soul. And so Paul is concerned that good works would flow freely and fully in the church as evidence of the gospel of grace at work in them. He calls Titus to insist that they be devoted to these things. But he's also concerned that foolish controversy would not damage the health and the unity of the body and destroy the the gospel oneness established in Christ alone. And so if you tonight are compelled to do good works, it's evidence of the grace of God in you. If you have put yourself on the bench, taken yourself out of the game and needed a little break and aren't really doing much to serve the Lord, then you're not actually living in line with the gospel you profess. Is your Savior really the one who has the power to save you? Do you actually know him? It's a check upon your soul tonight. And then as you pursue those good works, know that it is profitable for you, for the church, and for the world. May God grow us in that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, for its work upon our soul. We pray that you would increase our love for you and our desire to walk in the good works that you have foreordained for us to do. Thank you for Jesus. He is our only hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving yourself for our sins that we could be justified before God by you. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.